Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. All right, welcome to Planet Geo. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jesse? Oh, man, I'm doing really well. I'm excited for today's episode, to be honest with you. But before we get to that, let's do some brief introductions. You are Chris Bullheis, a nationally recognized earth science teacher from the great state of Michigan. And you are Jesse Rymink, one of my former students, now a professor of geoscience at Penn State. And this is Planet Geo, a podcast where we talk about amazing aspects of our planet and why it matters to our everyday lives. And today I'm extremely excited because we interviewed Dr. Diana Roman, who is a volcanologist. Oh, yeah. And I mean, she's awesome. She's amazing. She yeah. was amazing. I mean, this she was... swims with the dolphins. You know, that's like our version of swimming <laughs> with the dolphins. That's right. She it studies is. volcanoes. It is. I mean, there's such interesting yeah. things, such interesting features. And, you know, Diana, Diana's top notch in my book. And I've known her for a couple of years, but this interview was one of these things. I learned a lot. I mean, I felt like we could have talked for hours with Diana. Me too. I looked forward to this for weeks, actually. When you said that she was on board and I got, I was fired up right away. I couldn't wait to talk to her. How volcanoes work, man. Oh, okay. so cool. So in this interview, we first start out with talking about research with Diana, and then we kind of transition into her career path and, and how she got into geoscience, which is a really interesting story. She's got a very unique career trajectory. So stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear that aspect. Diana, how are you? I'm doing great. Good to see you both. Oh, it's great to see you too. We are excited to have you here. Welcome to Planet Geo. So before we get into the interview, I just want to give a brief introduction to you. You are a staff scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., and that is a job title that uh, people may not be familiar with, but we'll get to that later on. You were a professor at the University of South Florida before joining the Carnegie Institute, and you're a volcanologist. You study volcanoes. You've published around about 50 papers on volcanoes. You've won several awards for your volcanology research, and we're just super excited to talk about volcanoes. You also have a really interesting career trajectory, so we're going to get into that at the end of the episode. All right, Chris, so where are we going to start? Well, hey, you want to start getting into some volcanology stuff then? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Dinah, give us the <laughs> elevator pitch for your research. Like, What is the one or two sentence pitch to convince me that this is interesting? Well, so I study how volcanoes work, and this is really important because volcanic eruptions affect all of us, whether we know it or not. They might affect you as you're flying in an airplane. They might affect the climate we live in. So it's really important to understand, A, how they work, and B, what they're likely to do on a range of timescales. So my research is basically focused on understanding not only how eruptions happen, but also what's going on under the ground in between eruptions. And that turns out to actually be very interesting and very important. All right. So Diana, can you tell us what you do? What do you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? So the main thing I look at is actually seismic data. So earthquakes. Is that what, so when, you, when you say seismic data, this is just Earthquake data? What, what are we talking about with seismic data? What does that mean? So seismic just means vibrations in the ground. And that can be, you know, man-made. Traffic produces seismicity. Nuclear explosions produces seismicity. But natural processes, which is what we tend to think of first, produce seismicity. And volcanoes produce seismicity. So that's my main tool of looking at how volcanoes work. So what I actually look at are tiny, tiny earthquakes. You 
certainly wouldn't be able to feel them even if you were standing right on the volcano, but my instruments can record them in quite a lot of detail. So you use seismometers then, and you put them in buckets, if I understand correctly, and, and you dig a hole in the ground, right? Yeah, I'm a, good, I'm, about that? I'm a good Home Depot customer. So actually, Hey, Diana, I've seen pictures of you in a hole. Yeah, right? usually upside down in a hole somewhere. Yeah. But um, we, got, we got new instruments, so we don't need the buckets anymore. It's actually oh, cool. been fabulous. Right. Yes. So, yeah, tell us about that. So what we used to have to make little little vaults for our instruments in the ground. So we'd have to dig a hole and pour some concrete, let it set, come back a day later, and then make a little house for the instrument where we basically take a 10-gallon bucket from Home Depot, you know, those orange buckets, and we, f- <laughs> we just flip it upside down and we set our instrument on the concrete, we set the bucket on top of the instrument, and then we, we bury the whole thing. The concrete is just to stabilize the instrument then? Is that the... Yeah, we didn't want to put it in the dirt and it kind of gives it a little bit of better coupling. So, you know, again, we're trying to look at tiny, tiny vibrations. So it just kind of helps the instrument physically connect to the ground a bit better. So do you... How many pounds of concrete are we talking about here? (laughs) Um... You know, not yeah, all. Chris wants a seismometer like, in his backyard. He's, hey, he's hey, trying to I'm, budget no, it I've out got here. An angle here, Diana. I will <laughs> lug the concrete up the mountain for right. you. Okay? Well, the, the flip you side just is have to take me with you. <laughs> the flip side, I, I always told my grad students, like, okay, at least you have practical skills. You know how to mix concrete if the whole <laughs> science career doesn't work out. But you know, it's not a whole lot. Where maybe one bag's worth, but usually like a forty-pound bag. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're going to have to get into training there, Christopher. I yeah. know. <laughs> no, I'm good to go. We're, good we're to done go. with the concrete. It's, uh, so so what is the new, what's the new stuff like then? What, do you, what happened? Well, it sounds really simple, but basically we can just bury them now. Um, they come in much better oh. cases that can oh. withstand being stuck straight in the dirt. And so we just stick them right in the ground and like a, like a flower bulb and we yeah. pack them in and that's it. Does each one measure three senses of motion then? Most of them do, yeah. Um, there are still some that only measure one, but it's really important for us to get those three. The, the, the three senses of motion. What are we talking about here? Up, down, left, right? Up, down, uh, east, west, and north, south. <laughs> I mean, there's basically oh. just three, three, three that are perpendicular to each other. And from, from that, we can resolve anything. We can right, okay. trace the signal around. So when you say tiny, tiny... How tiny are we talking about? Well, my instruments can measure things that have a negative magnitude down to maybe negative magnitude one. And that sounds a little counterintuitive. That's because the magnitude scales are calibrated for larger earthquakes and so and for earlier generations of instruments. Negative magnitude. Okay, I must admit, I've never heard of this. Negative. So what is this in movement, in like real movement? We can, we can do that. Um, again, it's, you know, you wouldn't be able to see it if you were watching the ground very closely. It's, it's really something that only the instrument can pick up. One of my colleagues at one point, we calculated the volume of energy in all of the earthquakes. And he said, that's actually about one Snickers bars worth of energy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great calibration point. Wow. I love wow. that. That's amazing. Okay, so this is where you get you get your data from these seismometers. You put them around a volcano. You know, what are you doing with this data? Well, so we're looking for earthquakes. So we basically record continuous data, and there aren't earthquakes necessarily happening all the time. So one of the major first steps, and actually a, a lot of my time goes into 
pulling those events out of this continuous signal. So first I have to find the earthquakes in this stream of noise, continuous stream of noise, and then I have to measure them. And so when did they arrive on different instruments? You know, did they push the ground up or down first? These are the sorts of things that we actually look for in the data. And the questions are, okay, we're using our earthquakes around volcanoes. And what do they tell us? Well, so actually, it's surprisingly simple. One of the biggest things we want to know is how many of them are there? How fast are they occurring? So one of the first things we always do is we just analyze the continuous data and we want to try to count when are the earthquakes happening and how many per hour or how many per day. And what numbers are we talking about? I mean, you're talking about like 100 an hour? Are you talking about like two an hour? You know, it depends on what the volcano is up to. Some volcanoes are very quiet. Some volcanoes have a lot of seismicity in their background states. When they start to move into eruption, we see that the number of earthquakes goes up and also the the nature of the earthquakes changes. So that's actually a lot of what I try to study and understand. So we try to look at things like where are they located? So are they you know, right under the surface or are they a few miles down? We look at how big they are. So again, what is their magnitude? And we try to add up that you know, that energy and figure out, you know, how much is being released. We look at, again, things like how is the volcano pushing on the ground? Is it pushing in a direction that sort of suggests that there's maybe some magma being intruded somewhere? We can see that in the earthquakes. Wow. So you're getting this kind of view, you get to get a view underneath the earth and see what stuff is moving around and when it might potentially erupt, if at all. Yeah, we're trying to just figure out how the ground is breaking as magma moves through it. So, uh, Diana, I've heard you talk before about the pitch of a volcano, like the noise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So another thing that we look at is basically what is the frequency content of a little wiggle that represents an earthquake. And so by frequency, which I'm going to use interchangeably with pitch here, we just mean like how frequent are the, the waves coming across the instrument. So how rapidly is the ground vibrating? And and one of the neat things about volcanoes is that earthquakes from volcanic processes have a pretty big range in frequency or pitch, and that is actually meaningful to us. So that's one of the reasons that volcanologists are very focused on understanding, you know, is this a high-frequency earthquake or is this a low-frequency earthquake? Where is the energy? Where are the strongest vibrations in kind of a, a frequency spectrum? So I think I remember this talk that you had a really beautiful analogy for high frequency and low frequency with a comparison to sort of vocalists. Can you, can you run us through that again? Yeah. By high frequency, I mean, like if you're listening to Mariah Carey, very high pitched soprano by low frequency, I mean, very white, so very low pitched, you know, bass voice. So yeah, it's very analogous to human speech or human singing. And does each volcano have like a specific range or does it vary, you know, volcano to volcano? I mean, volcanoes in Hawaii, do they have the same, are they very white or? I mean, every, every volcano has, has the ability to, to sing like Mariah or sing like Barry. But what, what (laughs) we tend to see is the, the sequence. So most volcanoes in their background will be kind of doing the soprano thing. We tend to hear much higher pitched or see much higher frequency earthquakes. And then as we move closer to eruption, Barry White shows up and hmm. starts singing. And so wow, that's, interesting. that's not, you know, and this is one of the things that I, I've studied quite a bit. Is this really a consistent pattern? But it's something that, you know, we kind of have as a paradigm that when Barry White shows up, 
you start getting a little interested because that might mean that you're getting into something uh, that might culminate in an eruption. That's really interesting. Do you also try to, do you try to understand why low frequency Barry White shows up means, you know, we're getting down to business now. Do you try to understand why that happens? Absolutely. So a lot of research in my subfield of volcano seismology is what are the processes mechanically that are causing these lower frequency events? And we have a lot of ideas, a lot of arguments, but most of the ideas really revolve around moving a fluid through rocks. So it's it's kind of analogous to like blowing air through an organ pipe. We tend to set up these lower frequency vibrations. So we're still not sure the exact mechanics, and it probably varies from volcano to volcano, but we, we think we have a general concept, but understanding okay. that. Um, so is, do, do you think it's degassing? Is that what's driving this then? or that's, that's pretty much the primary understanding, is that what's happening is you're starting to get magma to a point where it's losing a lot of gas. That gas is moving through the rock and setting up these vibrations. Yeah, yeah I guess that this brings up a question of, you know, during an eruption, there must be like lots of earthquakes going on in, in the in the lead up to the eruption, presumably a lot of eruptions going on as well. But what's happening when there's not an eruption? I mean, what's the background stuff? Is there a lot of stuff to interrogate in there? Well, it really depends, again, on the volcano. Every one of them, has, okay. they're, they're all special snowflakes. They all have, they all have a personality. <laughs> there we go. Um, I love that. And actually, I mean, a, a huge question in my field right now is trying to understand a what controls that personality and B, how can we kind of move beyond that personality to find common processes? It's actually a really challenging thing. On that note of comparing volcanoes to one another, when I was at Carnegie, at least you were using some AI algorithms and some voice recognition kind of software algorithms to understand volcanoes. And and I I thought, again, this was like super interesting and really compelling. So is that, are you still working on that? Is that a Uh, a fertile scientific ground for you? So I need to get back to that. So again, you know, I talked about how a lot of our energy actually just goes into picking these signals out and characterizing them. And so, you know, I'm always trying to think about clever ways to do this. And so this, a few years ago, I got Siri on my iPhone and I started thinking about how she worked and thought, okay, let's, let's see if we can use some speech recognition techniques to pick out these signals. So There are some signals that volcanoes produce that are important that share a lot of structure with human speech. So I developed an algorithm that went in and looked at the data to find that. So I came up with a very simple algorithm to kind of pick things out that had a certain structure to them that looked like human sound. And it actually worked really well. And I kind of got away from it, but I've been thinking there are some really other neat developments in speech recognition that I think might solve some problems. And one that I've been thinking about for a few years is what's called the cocktail party problem. Okay, let's get into this. <laughs> this sounds fun. All right. So the cocktail party problem is actually... What it's, the it's a, it's a, What the hell is the cocktail party problem? I just sat up. I'm good. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Chris perked up. I could see him. Okay, I thought it was, it was getting a little, little technical. So this is actually, I think, I'm not sure I'm going to get the field right, but an issue in cognitive neuroscience. So imagine yourself in a crowded room with you know, a lot of different voices talking. You have two sensors, your ears, and your brain has the ability to use those two sensors and process their input to kind of hone in on a single conversation in a very noisy field of sound. And oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's been a lot of interest 
over decades of how does your brain do this, and then recently something called computational auditory scene analysis, which tries to kind of mimic this coning in on a signal that you can pick out some characteristic, like the sound of a particular person's voice, and filter all the noise out to get a better, you know, better hearing what they're saying. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm totally no, I, I've never thought of this, but I totally know what you're talking about. You can kind of pick up on a conversation across the room and ignore the person that's boring yeah. right in front of you, I guess. Right. If you have a little bit of okay. a, a template in your brain, you yeah. can do it. And so, so there's been a lot of work in signal processing and engineering and other disciplines to see how to adapt this as an algorithm. It would actually really be, if, if we could make it work, I think it would be really neat to try to apply to some of the harder things to hear the volcanoes. So this would be trying to filter through the Mariah Carey's to get at the Barry Whites. Would that be the kind of a uh what you're trying to look for? No, we actually, we still want to hear Mariah, but we want to hear her when she's whispering in a, Mm. in a noisy room. Okay. So that's really interesting that you're pulling things from other fields. And so how does your previous career path in venture capitalism uh, and entrepreneurship, are you using specific tools you developed there in, in this research? Yeah. Well, so not so much from the, the entrepreneurship side of my first career, but actually from the finance side. So Applied economics is basically a lot of calculus and statistics and specifically time series analysis. So it's like watching the Dow Jones, right? Everybody's trying to model it and figure out what it's going to do next. So that's very fun to watch it go up and down and (laughs) go up more than down. Nobody (laughs) knows. But actually, a lot of those general concepts, or at least that familiarity with time series analysis tools has translated over you know, is, is still a, a very common theme. I'm basically just looking for patterns in time. Um, and then we try to model them or understand them. But first, we have to identify the patterns. So it is actually surprisingly similar, again, in a skill set that I didn't know would transfer over, but that has. I guess the big question in my mind is, are you a better volcanologist because of your advanced economics background. I don't know about better, but I think it's certainly the kind of volcanologist I am. All scientists have a flavor or a personality to the the way they work, the way they conduct their research. And, you know, I like data. I like large data. I like long time series of data. And so that I think is just my style of doing research. So Diana, the kind of the direction that you're going with your research is just to predict what volcanoes are going to do. Well, I don't do any forecasting. So Pretty much any country on Earth that has potentially active volcanoes has usually a, a federal agency that's in charge of monitoring the volcanoes and making those forecasts. I don't do that, but I do work with them very, very closely. I work with several volcano observatories around the world. And really what I, I'm trying to do is develop tools for them or develop understanding that can ultimately help that process of, of making those forecasts accurately and quickly um, and in more detail. So then how has the research changed since St. Helens and Mount Pinatubo uh, to now? How have things changed? Well, I already told you about my great new seismometers. It was a game changer, <laughs> yeah, right, man. Right. No, more, yeah. no more concrete in my backpack. Um, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed about that because I'm serious about being your Sherpa. So. Well, we still have to dig the holes. So. <laughs> okay, there you go. No, but I mean, in all seriousness, you know, one of the big things is actually the internet has really, especially in volcano seismology, because data streams of you know instruments that are on volcanoes now go straight into a central server that I can look at in real time and I can get data. And 
that's been amazing. A lot of my research is actually from data that I pull straight off the internet. I never actually set foot on the volcano. And the other thing that's really changed is that now we're trying to combine observations. So while I look at seismicity, I have colleagues who look at how the ground deforms or what kind of gas is coming out. And so I think there's been a lot of progress in looking at those streams of information in parallel and really trying to use these different constraints to actually come up with models. And I mean, like numerical models, computational models of volcanoes. It's very analogous to weather science. So you know, a hundred years ago, people were doing pattern recognition, and now you have multi-physics fluid dynamical models running on supercomputers ingesting data. That's kind of the direction we're starting to go in. Let's break that down a minute. For weather prediction, you mean that, you know, oh, on the first Tuesday of November last year, it rained, so the first Tuesday of this year, it might rain again. Is that the kind of pattern recognition you're, you're referring it's to? It's more like um, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warnings. So people had okay. recognized that color of the sky was an, an indication of what the weather might be like in the next day. So yeah, so pattern recognition and you know, kind of having maybe a conceptual explanation for why, but and it works, right? But we're still very much in pattern recognition mode. Like I said, there's a lot more attempts to actually do physical models and really tie it to fundamental physical principles. But we're, you know, a lot of what we're doing is looking for patterns and trying to explain them with some simple ideas. And we're really trying to move, move beyond that. We need to, it's exciting though. So Dana, what, you know, let's, let's move into thinking about the future. What's, where do you see the future of your field in the next five or 10 years? What's the most exciting here? Well, today I was just trying to pick uh, signals out of continuous noise. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> using an algorithm. <laughs> But I think doing more, but in a more kind of systematic manner, and I think this is something that a lot of us in the field are talking about, that really we need to go make our measurements consistently on a lot of volcanoes, you know, different personalities. So I think we're really trying to get standardized and to not just study an individual volcano, but study a class of volcanoes to understand, again, how they work as a system. And I mean, this is still trying to get towards kind of a pattern recognition in data, but at least that will be the basis for us to really make better models. Like again, the, the weather forecasting analogy where we can say, okay, these are the conditions for this type of volcano. Here's some information on its current state, and then we can actually model it forward. You know, that's probably going to happen over the next few decades, hopefully. So maybe in my, at the end of my career, I'll get to see some, some real progress. That's just kind of getting going right now. It's a great direction. Yeah. So this is a question I've always wondered about volcanology uh, and volcano seismology specifically. I mean, give me like a, a ballpark estimate of how many seismometers are out there today detecting volcanic noise or volcanic earthquakes and how many volcanoes are those sitting on? Well, I, yeah. So I've actually been trying to figure this out. It's not an easy problem because, you know, it's a lot of different countries, but I would say the vast majority of Earth's Active volcanoes do not have a single seismometer on them and have never had one on them. But a handful of volcanoes, let's say maybe about 10, have what we would call sort of Cadillac networks, where they have dozens of instruments. Mount St. Helens, you know, is a very charismatic volcano, so it gets a lot of instruments. Yellowstone, obviously, Kilauea, but 
you know, there are very interesting volcanoes that in hindsight, it's like, oh, we should have had an instrument on that one. But we have, we have no way of, you know, out of the hundreds of volcanoes in the Andes, we have no idea that it was that one that's just been sitting there. So it's a little bit frustrating because, you know, we kind of make a decision about where to put the instruments and, um, you know, they tend to go in the places where there's already something known or something active. Why do we assume that there will be a systematic trend in volcanoes? Why isn't everyone super unique? So here's, here's another good analogy, and, and I'm stealing this one from a, a, an Icelandic friend and colleague. But if you think about medicine, so each one of us as individuals, our bodies are very unique, right? And they, they carry our history, they carry our genetics. But ultimately, the field of medicine has approaches to sort of see through that individual, you know, to understand it first, characterize it. What is your family history? What are your um, lifestyle behaviors? And then to get through to the the fundamental of the systems, the organs and the, the disease processes. So we kind of feel that volcanoes are the same way. In at the end, you know, we understand the process that causes volcanism on Earth, and it's the same for at least there are a few different types, not that many different ways to make a volcano on Earth. So yeah. we have to be able to see through that um, that personality. We have to be able to do it. Oh, that's a really interesting analogy, and uh, I think my medical doctor fiance will appreciate okay. that one. All right, so let's transition here to talking about your career path, Diana, because I know you have a really interesting one. All right, so Diana, I have to ask, because you know when I was going through college, there was a clear defining moment when I realized, all right, I love geology. I'm, this, I'm all in. You came about this in a different sort of way, but was there ever a defining moment for you? Actually, there really wasn't. I think it was a five-year-long process in total of me sort of starting the idea and then the the moment when I kind of thought, okay, it's complete and I can consider myself a volcanologist. Your undergrad, you, did you, do you have a geoscience degree or undergrad geology degree or something like that? No. So um, unlike you, Jesse, I, you know, I had two weeks of earth science, I think in the seventh grade. And oh, that, that hurts me. I know. <laughs> that that's why really I, hurts to hear. That's why I said oh. I, my, my life would have been maybe very different, but um you know, so I kind of kind of forgot about it. I was really into science in high school, but I really grew up thinking I wanted to go into finance. And so my first degree is from Cornell in applied economics with concentrations in financial economics and entrepreneurship. And um, Wow. So, okay. So let's get this off. <laughs> You're way smarter than Chris and I. Let's just start from that baseline. Well, Let me start the conversation there. <laughs> yes. Wow, Diana. That sounds really boring to me. So, you know, I mean, you're a volcanologist and, you know, every biology person wants to swim with the dolphins and uh, every geologist wants to see red lava. That's our version of swimming with the dolphins. And, and you do that on a regular basis. So how in that world do you go from finance into where you are right now? Well, it was really just a series of coincidences, I think. So at Cornell, the finance program for undergrads is actually in the school of um agriculture. So Cornell is a land grant. So along with my major classes, I actually had to take a lot of science, mostly biology. But two years before I finished my degree, I realized I had an outstanding science class that I had to take and it couldn't be biology. So a friend of mine was a geology major and really into volcanoes and made it sound exciting. So I thought, okay, I'll, uh, I'll finish off this credit and take a geo class and be done with it. 
So that was yeah. that was the start. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the class you took? It was actually a field mapping class. It was a oh, class cool. that was run on Saturday mornings and we got to go out. We did, you know, a little bit of stuff in class during the week, but the main part of the class was actually we, we went out um, in upstate New York on Saturday mornings and kind of learned geology in the field, learned how to map, learned how to use a brunt and compass, all that good stuff. Lots and lots of shale and limestone. <laughs> so I'm still, though, Diane, I'm still a little confused. You worked in finance for a while, though, right? <laughs> like, how did this how did this happen? You're going to have to give me the long version. I'm a little slow. Okay, so <laughs> I... I sh- yeah, uh, Chris is a lot slow. <laughs> a lot slow. So I signed up for this thing thinking, okay, I'm just knocking out, you know, another requirement for my degree. And on day one, I was hooked. I fell in love. And I remember kind of walking around campus in a bit of a daze after that first class thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? Because I still loved finance. I still loved entrepreneurship, but this was very unexpected. And, you know, I was, I was like a year and a half out from graduating at that point. And I'd spent, you know, Cornell tuition is not cheap. So I put a lot of time and money into my current then career path. Um, And so, you know, I, I kind of, tried to stuff this feeling and interest aside. And, um, you know, I thought I still, this is what I've wanted for a long time. I've worked very hard on it. I really need to finish this out. So I, you know, I I finished my, my major, I graduated a year and a half later. I managed to stuff in a couple more geology classes here and there. I'm known as this weird, I was the weird mascot of the geology department, (laughs) weirdo from finance. And I wanted to give, you know, working in finance a shot too. So you know, I felt like, you know, this is a this is a very unexpected turn in my life and I don't want to do something on a whim. So let me let me stick with it with what I'm wow. doing and see how this plays out. And then you just decided to jump? <laughs> so, after I graduated, I moved this was in 1997. I moved to San Francisco and I started working at Barclays Bank as a financial analyst and this was during the dot com era in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a time to be working it was a lot of fun. in San Francisco. That must be amazing. Oh, my goodness. So it was a lot of fun. It was a really, I mean, we were basically trying to figure out this new thing, the internet, you know, what to do with it. And, you know, a lot of Cornell grads who moved to the Bay Area were computer scientists and engineers, and they were working for, you know, startups and places like Yahoo. Basically, they were trying to fill that, figure out what, you know, what to do with the internet. And I was on the finance side trying to figure out, okay, where to throw money. Um, and uh, so that was a really exciting time. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, hey, look at, looking back, were you right? Oh. Were you through the money? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the next part. So about a few months after I, I started working at Barclays, I got together with another Cornell grad, a computer scientist, and we, we decided to start a company. So oh, we, cool. we had a dot-com startup. And I remember sitting in a cafe in um, you know, North Beach, and we were kind of kicking ideas around of like, what could we do? And at one point he said, well, what about an online travel company? You know, where people can go and buy their plane tickets just hmm. through a website. And I said, that's insane. People will never trust, <laughs> trust the internet enough to buy their plane tickets. Let's moving on, crossing yeah. it off the list. So, um, yeah. yeah, so that was a big miss, obviously. Yeah. 
Wow, what an interesting time. So what, what was the company you ended up starting? So um, the company... It wasn't Pets.com, was it? That's like the famous... Like, no, I mean, that was that's the other like famous miss. I, I, that was a year before me. But okay. we were talking about Pets.com that night and like, you know, the, this was an obvious idea and it, it fell apart. So the company we ended up starting um, was basically an online chat. Like some, at the time, you know, Usenet had been around for decades and, um, you know, was, was, is sort of a grassroots thing. It, it, nobody owns it. Nobody had commercialized it. And so we thought, let's, let's try to commercialize Usenet and basically set up a, you know, a forum for people to start discussions and we could bring in experts, uh, do this sort of thing. So basically what we tried to start was the closest thing right now is Reddit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, hmm. Very cool. It's very been, interesting. What an exciting time. I mean, <laughs> one kind of follow-up question to that that is, do you find any parallels in your that career path uh, with your research career path? And, and if so, what, what are they? Well, so here's where it started getting me back to volcanology. So I loved having a startup. It was one of the most amazing experiences. And I, I realized, so, you know, the startup obviously failed. I'm not you know, running Reddit right now. Um, we didn't, we didn't manage to get our second round of venture capital. Um, so the startup folded about a year in, and I realized at that point that I really didn't want to work for the bank anymore. I was either going to run my own company again, try again, or I was going to just go do this volcanology thing. In hindsight, I didn't know it at the time, but actually being a research scientist is very much like running your own small business. You have to wear a lot of hats. You have to be in charge of personnel and finance and marketing and product and you know, design and development. And so actually that's been a really neat parallel um, for me. That's interesting. I mean, I've gone through this a little bit. You know, I tell some of my family members, oh, being a new professor at Penn State, you know, you get this startup money to do research. It's kind of a little bit like a startup company. I mean, they don't buy it. They don't no, buy the argument. It's but. a lot like it's a lot like getting a startup going. Okay. The staff scientist position is something people have a hard time understanding. So can you explain kind of what your role is right now at Carnegie in the staff scientist role and how it compares to a professor at a large university like University of South Florida? Yeah. So Carnegie's a really unique and neat place in that we're basically professors, but we don't teach. We don't have students. We have a lot of postdocs like you, Jesse, a former postdoc at Carnegie. Um, yeah. So we do we do a lot of training and mentoring, but basically we just do research. Um, but we run our own labs. We you know write grants. Um, we run projects, and we kind of do the research side of what university professors do. So it's sort of similar in that sense, but you know we have a lot more of our time and energy to put to research. So Diana, I was uh, my, I was watching a video on YouTube on you. I was doing my research, getting ready for to interview you. And my wife was next to me. And so she, you right away caught her attention. So this next question really comes from her. <laughs> oh, boy, this could be a doozy coming from Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, geology has a reputation for being very male dominated. And you're a very prominent female scientist. And, you know, so can you have you had obstacles to overcome? You know, no. And but I want to couch that in saying that I think, you know, I'm lucky in being able to say that. And I'm also somewhat rare in being able to say that. But I, I really don't feel like I had that many obstacles because I was female. 
Do you work with a lot of other female volcanologists? I work with volcanologists. You know, there are a lot of women in volcanology. It's it's one of these sort of interesting subfields in geology that is maybe less male dominated. I mean, that's interesting. You know, geology is notorious amongst the sciences for being male dominated and sciences already are fairly dude heavy. So I'm, I'm curious what, you know, what the future looks like in this space. What are things that, you know, people in Chris's position or my position or your position can be active about um, in this space? Actually, I, I guess just again, reflecting on, you know, coming to this answer of, I don't feel like I had obstacles. I got lucky in that I was in a very male heavy world, you know, from the very beginning of my career in finance, it was Silicon Valley in the nineties. And, you know, I got confident really fast because I got treated like competent equal. So that was kind of the tone that I, you know, I had from the beginning of my career and that was lucky. But then in grad school, I think what was really important was that I had a female PhD advisor who was very successful, mm. but I also had two very close advisors who were men and um, they were up in Alaska. So I spent time with them every year up in Alaska, which is, you know, there are a lot of men, but again, you know, I, I had this combination of role model in my, um, my advisor, but I also worked with men and developed confidence because they treated me like I was another scientist. And mm -hmm. so yeah. I think that those two things really, if I, if I can claim any success, I think a lot of credit might go to that. All right. So what is your favorite volcano? Oh no, <laughs> this is like <laughs> asking somebody who your favorite child is. <laughs> okay. I'm, this time I, I get this question. I'm going to name one just because it's, I think it's an underdog and it's a weirdo. Maybe I have the most affection for, I wouldn't say favorite, a volcano in Nicaragua called Talica, where I had a almost decade-long deployment of instruments that ended in 2016. And one of the neat things about Talica is that it actually, in its when it's when it's just sitting there, not erupting, it's very white, and it's very white loud, like oh really, lots and lots of these low-frequency earthquakes. And then before it erupts it switches into Mariah mode. And then right before it erupts, it gets completely quiet. So it does things backward of most volcanoes. And so we've been very interested in studying, you know, what's going on there is that characteristic of the type of eruptions this volcano has. It's been a really fun one just because it's, it's a, a strange little one. And it also makes a lot of earthquakes for us to study. Like, is there something about it aesthetically that you love to? It's not very pretty. <laughs> 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 so which one is your favorite from that perspective oh fuji-san so i was actually i was lucky enough to be invited to a conference in japan in january before we all got shut down and uh they took us out and we had a for a field trip and we had a, the most gorgeous view of fuji and i i never get tired of looking at that volcano it's so beautiful yeah. i've never seen it firsthand just <laughs> pictures and it's it's gorgeous yeah Diana, what is your favorite volcano experience? Oh, this is an easy one. It's, All right. This is much easier than the, the favorite volcano. So when I was in graduate school, starting my PhD, my department took a field trip to the big island of Hawaii. And we got to go out onto the active flow field. 
and I got to stick a rock hammer in molten lava oh. and like actually pull. And what, what was amazing about it was, so magma has viscosity, which is like you know, water. It's very runny. It's, it's low viscosity versus molasses is high viscosity. So that's actually low, but low, that's the water analogy. And I just remember sticking my hammer into it and pulling and getting a physical understanding of, you know, how thick and viscous lava is. Hmm. And that actually is, I think about this a lot. It's actually is a big part of my research, you know, how viscosity of of lavas and magmas uh, affects earthquake activities. So that that was just like one of those, like it made it real. It was really cool. Well, well, I think, you know, that covers all of our questions here. Diana, thank you so much. This has been amazing just sitting down and talking to you. And I, to be honest, you know, I'm, I we've talked a lot over the years when I was a postdoc at Carnegie, but I learned a lot just in this conversation right here. So thank you very much. Yeah, I was, I've been excited all day, uh, actually all week to talk to you. So <laughs> yeah, uh, has been. I, can, it's, I it's, really have. It's been my pleasure. This is, this has been a lot of fun. Actually. It's, it's great to see you again, Jesse. It's great to meet you, Chris. And yeah. uh, this has been a really fun conversation. It's yeah. my favorite yeah, it's subject. Awesome. So yeah, right. <laughs> How could we bet? Talk about two smart people earthquakes. about volcanoes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I don't yeah. Know. All right. And that's a wrap for our interview with Diana. Thanks for tuning in to planet geo and stay tuned for more upcoming episodes. As always, if you got something out of this episode, if you enjoyed what you're listening to, we just ask that you share it with somebody who also might be interested, who might have that interest in your sciences or is interested, they just don't know it yet. So share it with that person, pass it along. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, and take care.